Welcome to Contemporary Communication. I'm your host, Dr. Andrew Jones, and in today's episode, we're going to look at the importance of failure. Listen in. Well, I don't know how the past few weeks have been for you, but for me, they've been quite odd. Not only have I been stuck in self-isolation as a result of a recent trip abroad, but also I've been working to move a lot of courses into an online format, something I'm not particularly excited about doing, as many of you may already know. Also, though, over the course of this week, I received feedback from two projects that I've been working on. One is from a... um, a journal article that I I worked on with a colleague, and the other is for a conference application that I put in. I want to start by talking a little bit about the the paper because I'm not sure that uh, students understand what it is that faculty do. You know about our teaching, and that's pretty obvious. It's the clearest part of our work and the clearest part of our obligations as faculty members at the university. But that's only one-third of any faculty member's workload. If we break it down into the three areas that all faculty member work through, you have teaching, and then you have service. So that's things like serving on committees, uh, advising thesis students, that sort of thing. And then you have research. Depending on the type of institution where you work, Research could be 40% of your overall workload, 30%, 20%, or as high as 60%. Research is important. It's what you do that contributes to the ongoing knowledge of the field. It deepens our understanding about whatever it is the particular faculty member specializes in. And so it becomes an important tool and an important part of the trade. So, while you rarely see it, faculty members usually spend their summers doing some form of research. That research can end in journal publications, in new approaches to teaching, in conferences where we contribute to different modes and practices of engaging in our world. For me, over the past summer, I spend a lot of time working through ideas about listening, and ideas about how we listen through computer-mediated communication. One element of that that I was working on was to understand how time functions in computer-mediated communication. Before I delve too deeply into that topic, I first started working with a colleague on a project that I thought was really fascinating about how people engage with YouTube. Those of you who've taken my media culture in a digital age may have heard me uh, mention that I thought this this particular phenomenon is quite funny in the past. And those of you who didn't have that course with me, well, now you're going to get this little tidbit. YouTube has a problem. Content creators will often upload a video that includes music they don't own the rights to. In a previous life, I worked for the Edinburgh International Festival Fringe as a venue manager there. And one of the things that was really interesting to me is that the recording industry um, 
rights uh, administers <laughs> had worked out a deal with the entire festival. So basically what happened was if you wanted to use copyrighted music, you ticked a box on the form and you paid the royalties and those royalties were sent then um, and it was kind of allocated out to the, to the artists that you had um, used the, the work of. And the reason was because it was unfeasible to police all of these different performances. With YouTube, that whole issue is magnified thousandfold. So you have this question then about the nature of uh, rights management in a digital forum. And what I found was that the, the legal implications were so complex that um, individuals would respond to this complex legal system as if it were magic. An important author um, of the 20th century science fiction fantasy, or science fiction, Arthur C. Clarke, wrote a book, 2001 A Space Odyssey. It's the foundation for the film that was later made uh, by Stanley Kubrick. Um, Clarke and Kubrick disagreed greatly on the nature of the film and uh, the world has disagreed about its quality. But something else that Clark contributed was the his his laws of science and magic. One of his laws, I think it's Clark's third law actually, is that any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. And so what I was wondering is, could it be that any sufficiently technical language is indistinguishable from magic. That is, what if it's the technical aspect of legalese that makes us respond to it as if it is magic? Think for a moment about the pop-ups that you get whenever you log on to a new website, where you, if you're in Europe, agree to the storing of cookies and, and datas to being tracked and traced. In part, what that is um, appealing to, the reason that so many people click accept or acknowledge or okay, is that the technical language of the agreement of what's happening behind the scenes so surpasses us that, for me anyway, I click okay because I want to accept the protection of a technical shield that exists outside of myself. So in the same way I, I click that I understand and have read end-user license agreements, I click and agree that I have understood the parameters for opening a new email account or starting up with a new service. The technical language so overwhelms me that I resort to a kind of magical thinking and this becomes explicit then in the realm of YouTube, where a user, a content creator, puts something out, uses copyrighted material, and then includes a note that disavows um, ownership of the copyright material. So in other words, when you upload material on YouTube, you have to assent that you, you indeed have the right to publish the content. But then some users would include in the comments that they didn't make any copyright claims, even though in order to upload the video, they'd had to make a copyright claim. 
Now, YouTube has found other ways to address this now, and so we have all sorts of uh, technologies for finding music that's being used in uh, in a video or even in a podcast or something like that. And a portion of the proceeds are given to the to the artist, much like the way that the the Edinburgh Festival Fringe was able to work out. Um, their contract system with the recording industry, the recording music industry. But it's still fascinating to me that the response, the immediate response to the problem was this kind of magical warding. Now I tell all of you, I tell you kind of all of that in order to tell you this. Now the paper that came out of that uh, presentation, it was um, recently rejected by multiple journals. And what this means is that the, the idea the argument um, for for both times received a, a cursory glance and then an immediate rejection. And the reason that I, I raise this idea is because I want to be open with you to understand that I have experienced the sort of frustrations that you all feel when you're trying to write a journal article. When, well, for you, when you're trying to write a paper for an assignment, an essay for an exam, a final project, a, a thing that you don't know how it will be received until you receive that final criticism. And it is unfortunate that there's not a way to lessen the blow of rejection or in your case, to lessen the blow of possible failure. But we try to make it more amenable. As I talked about in my philosophy of education, I like for the classroom to be an experimental space where it's all right to fail, to try something out and to see that it didn't work. My hope is that that experimental space allows you to think experimentally beyond the boundaries of the classroom, to fail and fail again. I go back to one of my favorite poets, and it's funny, I, I just this past weekend identified myself as someone who doesn't like poetry, and yet I'm finding more and more that in this age of my life, I am enjoying poetry in ways I never thought I could. Pete Hine has uh, another one of his crooks, and I forget the, the title of this particular one, but the line that sticks in my mind is, to err and err and err again, but less and less and less. And it's, it's that idea that perfection is not the first attempt done well and rightly according to instructions but rather it is the artistic vision that through the chipping away of stone reveals what was there in advance. And yet even that I find unsatisfying in some ways. I find myself unqualified, deeply unqualified to comment on things of an artistic nature, but I appreciate the performative aspect of human interaction, which allows for the continued experimentation on relationships as we grow closer in understanding and appreciation with those around us, that we become not more resilient in the face of failure, but rather that we become 
more adaptable, that we hold elements of our own presumed expertise more loosely, that we allow ourselves to be teachable and to see our contributions as aiding our fellows rather than besting them or merely meeting their expectations. So despite this circuitous route, the thing that I would want you to take away from today's little episode is the idea that failure is a precursor, not to greater success, but a precursor to openness. And in that openness, a precursor to the creativity and opportunity that allow for greater collaboration. And so I hope that my own failings bring me closer to an understanding of a phenomenon that I truly want to grasp. How do we respond to technical language with magical thinking? And while in the past I've looked at this as a deep set flaw, perhaps there's some better thing to be learned about the opportunity that magic has for ameliorating the anxiety of an overly technological age. Well, that's it for episode number four. Once again, I encourage you to like, share, comment, send me messages. I hope that this finds you where you are and that you have had a chance to enjoy coming back into the classroom a little bit over these last several minutes. I am deeply proud of all of our alum. It's been an honor to have you in my classes, and it's been fantastic to see all of the ways that you have branched and grown and contributed in the places where you've been planted.